0: Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Today, we kick off the Wise Traditions speaker series. My first guest is Lisa Bianco Davis, a Weston Price chapter leader founder of Prout Pounder, and a speaker at the Portland Conference this weekend. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. The U.S. House of Representatives recently presented a bill for funding to avoid a government shutdown. Included in this bill is a provision known as the Monsanto Protection Act. The provision would prevent judges from being able to stop GMOs from being planted even if the seeds are found to be unsafe. Very scary power that Monsanto has to be able to buy itself into government provisions like these. While in other countries, GMOs are banned, here, our government gives Monsanto the power to create new ones. Next, a 10-year-old from Virginia was misdiagnosed with pediatric autoimmune neuropsychopatric disorders associated with streptococcal infections after he had compulsive symptoms from strep infections and was taking antibiotics for a good amount of time. He was then given probiotics and all of his symptoms went away and he was healthy again. A great story about the success of probiotics and why we should avoid antibiotics. And finally, the USDA is now allowing Hawaii avocado growers Be allowed to ship their produce to 32 mainland US states and Washington, D.C. during the months of November through March. Normally, during these months, supermarkets sell avocados from New Mexico. Although this does support the US economy, avocados from Hawaii will be traveling in from a longer distance. When choosing avocados, ones that are organic are more important than their location. But also, as avocados can't be grown in a lot of areas during the wintertime, You should consider eating avocados only when they're in season. And now for the main course. Today, I kick off the Wise Traditions Speaker Series. Before I go into interviewing the speakers for the International Conference in Atlanta this November, today I'm going to bring on one of the speakers from the regional Wise Traditions Conference in Portland, Oregon, which starts this Saturday. My guest for the Wise Traditions Portland Conference is Lisa Bianco-Davis. Lisa is the leader for the Eugene, Oregon, Weston A. Price chapter, one of the most active chapters around. Her chapter regularly holds potlucks, DVD showings, and classes. In addition to running the chapter, Lisa has founded Kraut Pounder, which helps people make sauerkraut and raises money for her chapter. As she started Kraut Pounder, she's clearly skilled in making sauerkraut and other ferments, and she'll be speaking at the Portland Wise Traditions Conference about taking the fear out of fermentation. So let's give a warm, appropriate, omnivore welcome to Lisa Bianco-Davis. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the program.
2: Thank you, Thank you for having me. Well, I think
1: it's great to have you on as you'll be speaking at the conference. And also, you're a chapter leader like myself, which is a co-leader, so I think it's good from one leader to another to hear what each of us have to say. Yes, indeed. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of the background, how you got involved with Real Food and becoming a Weston Price chapter leader.
2: Oh, it's kind of a long story. I uh, I credit my dog um, with uh, introducing me to real foods. I was uh, I'd fallen in love with this puppy at a shelter, and um, he was under quarantine because he'd been exposed to another puppy that had parvo. And so while I was waiting for him to get out of quarantine, I found um, a little book at the library um, that outlined what the author described as a species-appropriate diet for dogs and cats. And at that time, I was a vegetarian and thought I was eating a pretty healthy diet. Um, but just having having my dog and um, b- deciding to feed him meat and make his own, make a food for him, I, um, I got used to handling meat, and that was um, a major uh, transition for me. And um, uh got used to having it in the house, and my husband started saying, hey, this dog's eating better than we are. And um, after a while, I ran across um, some other information that kind of went through the same thing of of reevaluating my own diet of saying, well, am I eating the species-appropriate diet for humans? And I decided that I was not, and I um, gave up being a vegetarian, started eating meat, um, gradually added a whole bunch of other things like fermented foods, and bone broth and um all of the the nourishing traditions um weston a price type foods into my diet but that was what what started it all was um was this introduction to um to putting meat back in my diet and then looking at everything else and going you know is this really um the the right diet that i'm eating for humans and then how did
1: you go from learning about eating meat and real foods, ferments, to then becoming a Western Price chapter leader.
2: Once I started reading various books and articles, and I really just got into it, and I was going to the library and looking up people's you know, big b- bibliographies and, and saying, okay, so where did they get this information, and looking up the original articles and whatnot. And I kept running across uh, Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon, and, you know, that was referenced a lot of places, and so so I was got interested in that, and I looked up my local chapter, and there was one here in Eugene. I contacted the chapter leader, and um, I asked if there were potlucks, if there were gatherings, if there were ways for me to get involved, because I was searching, and I was um, uh, was wanting to connect with people and feeling like, you know, here I am making this major shift in my life, and I don't have any support group or anything like that and um she said no we don't have that but sally fallon's coming to eugene to speak and so i went to that and i heard sally speak for the first time and i hadn't even read the book at that point um but somewhere between i think she came to eugene in 2001 and 2004 i um started organizing local um get-togethers. Uh, we started at restaurants originally, and then later on those turned into potlucks at people's houses who, who would volunteer their space. And um, and then eventually I met my co-chapter leader, uh, Victoria, and um, the two of us decided to offer the, the current um, chapter leader uh, that we would take over for her because she was um, focused on other things and wasn't getting people together like we were doing. And so we took over as uh, running the chapter together, and um, and my my focus uh, my reason for getting into it was really for myself for wanting to <laughs> connect with other people and also wanting to be a resource for ev- other people who were in a similar situation as I was of going I'm searching I know that what I'm doing isn't working for me and I don't know where to go from here or and this sounds interesting all those kind of things of just that initial thought of. Um, of where do I go from here, and I wanted to be a resource for people, and I wanted to have that support group for myself. And so we um, we started doing potlucks regularly. Um, they were originally on uh, times, and then we switched them to evening times and got more people that way. Um, my co-chapter leader started showing DVDs at her house, and these were mostly um, ones that we purchased from the Wise Traditions Conference. And um, I have continued that on since she's... Um, She's no longer my co-chapter leader, but I've continued that, that tradition on of showing monthly DVDs, and um, we taught classes together. Since then, I've um, brought in some other teachers, and we've had some, um, some classes where we have five teachers, and we each take a segment and um, uh, present it to, to the attendees, and um, people tell us they really like having different influences, different uh, perspectives on the, you know, on the topic. And each person's doing a different um, dish and bringing their own perspective to the class.
0: And this all started in early
1: 2000s, which I think was just a little bit after the Weston Price Foundation formed. So was this one of the first chapters?
2: Well, there there was the existing chapter, um, and I think think, uh, Julie Tilt was our first chapter leader, and I think um, she was right in there from the start. Um, I didn't take over as chapter leader officially until 2007, but – from about 2004, I was involved and I was starting to get people organized and getting a, an email list together and getting people together in person um, since about 2004. And now currently it seems like your chapter is really active
1: based on the programs that you initiated with the potlucks and screenings, and I know I also do some classes. But how many events does your chapter do a month?
2: Two regularly. We have a potluck um, that's usually on the second Monday of each month, and um, and that rotates around the different members' houses, just depending on who can volunteer their house. Um, we're not wedded to that time and date, but that's been our traditional time to meet. And then we do the DVD showing, and that's usually the third or fourth Friday of the month, and we do that at um, uh, a community room in um, our local store called the Market of Choice. And um, and those are two regular things they we have we probably skip one or two months a year, so we're probably having you know, about about ten of each of those a month and um and then we'll have classes that just kind of come and go and um based on when those of us who are volunteering our time to teach them have the time and energy to put them together and we're currently in the process of of um creating our next class um our last one was on uh, organ meats, and that I thought was went very well, very successful. We'd like to do it again. We had a number of people that weren't able to to make it, and they were saying, "Well, when you do it again, we'll come." So um, we're planning to do that organ meats class again, and then we're also in the process of figuring out um, the dishes that we want to do for a grains class. Although some of us, uh, some of us teachers that have been doing this are finding that we're actually quite sensitive to grains, and so we're wondering if we should do a grains and non-grains class or or maybe break those out into two separate classes because there's so many people that have been damaged by the modern diet that they're no longer able to handle traditionally prepared grains.
1: I think a non-grains class would be good to offer in addition to a grains class. For my chapter, just last month, that was what our meeting was about because we do it where we have a potluck and then a speaker. So we had a speaker that talked all about grain-free cooking for people that are on GAPS diet or have some sensitivities to gluten, perhaps all grains, such as with the GAPS diet, you avoid all types of grains, not just the ones with gluten. So we had, with that, learn how to do coconut flour and almond flour, and I think that is an important thing to learn. And I love that you're doing an organ meats because Karen, who co-leads the passing a chapter with me right when I came on board, Karen was saying she'd been doing this chapter for a couple of years a solo and then brought me in and she said she wanted to do one on organ meets and I was totally on board for that and so we're hopefully doing that in a couple months We've kind of been playing around based on when we get certain speakers but organ meets is a class we have going up so I'm glad to hear that yours was a success what other classes have you done in the past?
2: Well, we started out with fermentation as, a, as kind of the base. Um, we'd do a short class that was um, just an hour or less, I think, considering we had uh, set up and tear down in there also. And we'd just teach people the basic sauerkraut making, kimchi, um, beet kvass, um, different techniques, and um, let them sample it. It's uh, always been a part of our class is having samples right there so people could taste it, smell it, feel it, whatever, and feel comfortable with what they're, um, you know, when they start doing it, that, yeah, this looks right, this feels right, this tastes right. Hands-on is certainly
1: important. Do they get to then take home what they make?
2: Uh, no, it's never been, well, we've done separate class, separate events that were workshops where they're actually hands-on, but most of right. the classes have been the, the, the participants are in chairs, and thus instructors are up in front, and we're demoing it. So we bring all the ingredients, and we have a table set up, and we have all of our tools and whatever we need. We bring that all in, and then we show making it, but then we also have some that's been prepared ahead of time, and so it's, you know, in the case of fermented foods, that it's been fermented pr- um, sufficiently to taste right, and then we hand out the samples. So while they're watching the demo, they can taste the finished food, and um and see what that's like and a- ask questions as it, as it comes up. And then, um, so fermentation has always been a big part of it. And then we've also done just sort of some basic um, introduction to Western Price philosophies, ta- teachings, principles that we follow. And so we've taught, um, you know, making bone broth and um, roasting a chicken, you know, simple stuff that people. Um May, you know may not have ever learned and we're dealing with a lot of people that are either coming from a vegetarian background or just coming from a junk food background or just you know they've never learned to cook and so we often just you know start at the start at the beginning level and we're not none of us are gourmet chefs or anything but we just cook for ourselves and we um, love to share that. I would say bone
1: broth and sauerkraut are two of the most important things to, for beginners to learn at the wise Traditions conference. Earlier this year, the regional one in Detroit, there was a chapter leader that spoke about both bone broth and sauerkraut. Because sauerkraut, I would say, is probably the most basic ferment you can learn and a good one to start with. Some of these other ones, it gets a little more complex, learning how to do something like pickles or sourdough bread. And bone broth, I just think that's wonderful for so many things. To make it with your soups, you can use to cook your – muscle meats in them, it's very important that you have the gelatin from the bone broth to add that to the muscle meats because they're different than the organ meats and also things such as you can make barbecue sauce from bone broth.
2: Right, exactly. And uh, from the nutrient content, it's it's important to have those together um, to make a complete source of amino acids and uh, the nutrients that we need. So in addition to the classes, you talked about
1: DVD showings. What are some of the films that you've shown?
2: Well, like I said, they're mostly um, recordings from Wise Traditions Conference. So we'll pick uh, the best the best speakers or the ones that we think w- would resonate with our chapter. And um, the people that weren't able to attend the conference then get to sit for a couple hours and watch the the presentation that was pre- presented at the last year's conference. Um, so we've we've done a number of um, of presentations by Chris Masterjohn, by Sally Fallon. By uh, Stephanie Senef, um, uh, Julia Ross. I showed all of um, Julia Ross's DVDs um, early this year because I attended last year's main conference and I listened to her speak all day. And I was like, "These, I've got to, I've got to show." And um, hers had to do with, um, well, uh, uh, your traditional mood, your traditional weight, um, and traditional sleeping. And um, using amino acids to correct imbalances and, and using traditional diets to, um, to fix you know, addictions and mood disorders and, and insomnia and all sorts of issues. And I thought they were really excellent. And Julia Ross's presentation
1: was part of the main theme last year at the conference, which was nutrition behavior. Exactly. I have to say I love that, that they provide those DVDs from the past conferences for people that weren't able to attend it's a great resource to be able to see those presentations and learn from
2: them. Yeah, me too. I've, I've purchased them myself and um, or at least the MP3 uh, versions, and I have them on a little MP3 player. So whenever I'm on a long drive or have some time when I'm doing something with my hands and I, my brain needs some other engagement, um, I can just turn it on and listen to some wonderful speaker talk about something that I'd never thought of before. And I just listened to one on vitamin B6, and uh, listened to uh, one on uh, diabetes and uh, salt, and there's some really wonderful topics. And I I, I particularly love the farmers um, when they bring in farmers for the farming track. I think those are um, are great to listen to because we're connecting um, people who eat with people who raise food, and to know and for those two to come together and know what. Um, but the people who are eating are looking for, and so that the farmers are making that connection both ways, and that, and that, um, you know, I hate to call it consumers, but um, you know that that we have um, input in how they're raising their their animals and plants, and um, and we learn from them of why they're doing things in particular ways. So I just think it's wonderful to also listen to the farmers.
1: I love that they have farmers included in the wise traditions, and. It's a thing that I really like about the Wise Traditions Conference is it's a tent of these different types of natural food and natural living conferences because you have a lot of ones which are very specific. you got ones which are about the natural health and very much the theoretical end of it, and then you have ones from farmers. You also have ones from the entrepreneurs and the merchants talking about the products, and you got some – talk about the cooking, and the Wise Tradition puts all those different types of presentations and speakers and exhibitors into one conference, which I think is amazing.
0: Yeah, because they really do all go together. They do. It's important to know
1: all of them, and you have a chance at Wise Traditions. They have different tracks every day, and so you can choose which ones, and if you want to experience them all, one time a day you can go to one of the health and wellness, and then you can go to an agriculture, and they can go to a cooking one.
2: I've heard that the feedback that they get at the end of the conference, one of the complaints is always it's hard to choose which one to attend. And, and uh, uh, they say, we do that on purpose. Make it as hard as possible for you to have to choose which, which speaker to go at, here at any particular time. It makes sense.
1: You have to choose ones that people want. If it wasn't hard to attend, then that would mean there would be some speakers that no one was going to. I also find it hard to... Attend because I want to see the speakers, but then I also want to have time to talk to a lot of the exhibitors. So uh, there's a lot to get in, and you can't get in all of these. And I guess that's the advantage then coming back is eventually trying to see some stuff that you missed the first time and do it a little different each time. Right.
2: And just learning from other participants who are there, you know, whoever you sit with at dinner time, usually big, big round tables so that you sit with some um, people that you didn't necessarily come to the event with and um, just visit and find out what they're into and learn some really fascinating uh, things from people.
1: It's great some of the people I've gotten to meet at the table, and when it's for a large one like the international, meeting people from all over because I've lived in L.A. now for a good portion of my life, originally from Ohio, and when I was at one of the conferences, got to meet some people from Ohio that were in a chapter there, and you also have the chance to get to meet some of the bloggers You never know, you may have sitting with the table with them. And then it depends if you know a lot of people going into it or not. My advice for people is when you do the meals, try to do each meal with a different person so you get a chance to get to know all the people that are going there. In addition to your chapter, you have a business called Crowd Pounder, and this I know is mainly to keep your chapter active. Tell us a little bit about what Crowd Pounder is.
2: It's it's turned into a business. It, It started out as just a little fundraiser for our chapter. It was... Uh, originally the idea of my co-chapter leader, Victoria, and she brought in her grandmother's um, wooden sauerkraut-making tool and said, I think we should make these and sell them to uh, earn some money for our chapter. And um, I took it and ran with it, um, created um, a a local version of that, um, came up with the name Kraut Pounder, and started a website, uh, krautpounder.com, and it originally the website originally started just to sell the crowd pounders but then we began using it for our chapter um, for to communicate and to post events and things like that and so uh, i eventually had to split them into two websites so now we have crowdpounder.com for for the crowd uh, pounder sales and we have org as our main uh, uh, location for our chapter um, Activities and uh, information for local people. Um, the crop pounders continue to to sell. Um, we've actually sold more around the world than we have right here in Eugene. They're um, they're still made right here in Eugene, um, and uh, shipped with uh, volunteer labor. Um, they're made out of solid maple, turned on a lathe. Uh, no glues or fillers or anything are used, and they're finished with um, food grade walnut oil, and packed up in envelopes and sent to people who want them from around the world. I've uh, mailed personally quite a few to Australia and New Zealand and the UK and um, of course all over the country in the United States. The purpose of Kraut
1: Pounder, as the name says, is to pound the cabbage to get the liquid inside the sauerkraut.
2: Right, right. So when you're making um, sauerkraut or kimchi or any of the fermented foods where you're using the the juices of the vegetables themselves um, rather than adding a lot of water, um, it's good to mix it with salt and um, and and um, pound the juices out of <laughs> out of the uh, the cell wall. So you're breaking it down. Um, some of that happens just from the salt and you can let it sit for a little while to, to help that release the juices. You can also squeeze and, and use your hands um, a lot. Um, but you can use this tool and it's a really nice um, uh, shape to, uh, to do some pounding with. And then um, also where I find it's really helpful is once you start packing it into a, a vessel. I, I usually ferment in half gallon mason jars. Um, you just layer some of those vegetables into the jar press it down. You're not pounding in the jar, but you're just pressing and leaning your weight against it to layer that up and to press them down really firmly so that you end up with an, a good inch or more of um, the juices that are released from the vegetables themselves to cover them. And that keeps the oxygen from uh, permeating down into the vegetables. And uh, you want to keep it anaerobic. You want to keep the vegetables under the liquid at all times while they're fermenting.
1: A couple of weeks ago, I was at the fermentation festival in Santa Barbara After buying sauerkraut for a long time, as being a Western Price member for a little over a year, I've then actually taken the step of learning how to make sauerkraut. And I've learned very much the importance of pounding on the cabbage and making sure that you get the water in there. And I have to say that your device, the kraut pounder, is a great asset to it. Now, I had found that it was hard... Making the liquid for the sauerkraut before putting it in the jar, but this can actually be used to pound it before it goes inside the jar.
2: Yeah, that's the way I've been doing it. Um, I find that if you if you mix up your vegetables, whether you're using just straight cabbage or if you got a mixture of, of carrots, celery, anything, that, of beets, any sort of root vegetable, um, there's a lot of different variations you can put into there. Mix that up in a big bowl with your with your salt, and you can add liquid way if you want to um, and that's uh, using it as an inoculant so this would be the liquid that you'd strain off of yogurt or kefir Um, but vegetables ferment pretty well without that so it's not necessary Um, mix the salt in and then um, and if you're using a big wide salad bowl and you try to pound you'll have vegetables kind of shooting out over the edge so i find that it's really helpful to switch it into a container like um, something with straight sides like a crock pot or a uh, stock pot and then um, then just use after it's set for a little bit and the salt started working on it already then you can pound just up and down it shouldn't you know it shouldn't wear your arm out but um, you can get some good pressure on it that way and then you can really get the um, you'll start seeing the juices at the bottom and you know if you pick it up and squeeze it in your hand you should actually be able to wring some liquid out I think that was the mistake that I made when I first started was not getting it um, juicy enough before trying to pack it into the jar, and it really does make a a big difference to get it really nice and juicy um, before you try packing it into your jar or crock or whatever you're using for your fermentation vessel. Maybe that was a
1: problem that before putting it into the jar, it wasn't in something that was perhaps uh, tall enough because I could see how if you're using something like a crock pot that it will go deeper and it will be easier to pound it. And perhaps I didn't pound it hard enough because I was kind of worried about it all shooting out in the small container.
2: It will if you use a big, wide, uh, like a salad dish or something with big, shallow sides. Um, and you start pounding on the bottom. Everything just wants to go up, out the sides and over the edge. Um, so using something with straight sides and that's deep enough to hold all your veggies, um, that's, that's really helpful. So you know, like a stock pot with nice, straight sides is a good way to... Good way to do it. There you go.
1: We'll talk more with Lisa Bianco Davis about her Weston Price chapter in Eugene, Oregon, her crowd Pounder, as well as we will get into what she'll be speaking about at the Wise Traditions Conference coming up in Portland. But first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health, Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflour.net, or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join
2: for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details.
1: Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleaestates.com or by contacting Carl by email. K-A-R-L at oleastates.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. I'm talking to Lisa Bianco-Davis. Lisa is going to be speaking at the upcoming Portland Wise Traditions Conference. She has a chapter in Eugene, Oregon, and she also has a product called the Kraut Pounder, which is used, as the name suggests, to make sauerkraut, which brings me into where I was going to go next, which is, Lisa, you're going to be speaking at the conference coming up in a few days about taking the fear out of fermentation. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, the, um, the name it was something that uh, I came up with just as a, as a way of expressing that when people first start doing something that's totally unfamiliar to them there's a lot of fear there's some um, you know maybe maybe you wouldn't call it fear maybe you just a um, little nervousness little trepidation about starting on some project you often think of reasons why you shouldn't um, or why you can't launch into something totally unfamiliar and so I've designed this talk to be for the absolute beginner or for the person who maybe has tried a little bit of making sauerkraut but didn't really feel that confident, didn't feel like they were doing it right, to go through it step by step and talk about all of the different concerns that people have. And um, and then if you if you go online and you read, you know, somebody says do it this way, somebody else says do it this way, somebody else says, oh, no, that's way too dangerous, don't do it that way, you know, you can get really confused. So I try to break it down really simple, step by step, um, why do you do differ- the different steps, and um, and you know which ones are optional and which ones are needed in order to make it work. And we touched on uh, some of the tips that I'll be sharing uh, already before the break. Um, so I'm just trying to make it as, like I said, as simple as possible, an easy introduction to um, fermenting foods, um, starting with sauerkraut and then getting into some more uh, different different types, and looking at the whole. Um, the whole um, pattern of fermented foods rather than focusing too directly on recipes. I don't want people to focus too um, specifically on having to have specific recipes, but looking at it in the broader picture of how do you do this, why do you do it?
1: Are there ways to make sauerkraut that you think can be dangerous?
2: No, I think all of the fermented vegetables are very safe. There's a, a quote from the book The Art of Fermentation by Sandor Katz, and he's quoting a, a USDA food um, fermentation specialist who says, whiskey is not a word that I would use in association with fermented vegetables. I think they are very safe, but it's still, we're not used to doing this. So this is, is has been sort of a dying art, and it's it's coming into a revival, but there are still a lot of people uh, for whom this is, is new and um unfamiliar and so they're you know they have concerns and um trying to allay those fears
1: i would agree when fermenting vegetables that's pretty safe there isn't really anything that can go wrong with fermenting vegetables but the only thing that can happen as far as adding too much salt or keeping it out too much is that it'll get too sour you talked earlier about adding whey to it and that's something that i would say because whey then that's from milk. I would say that you have to be a little more careful. What do you think?
2: I think whey is very safe also. Um, I don't think it's totally necessary. It is the, the method that um, I learned with from, from Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon. Um, she introduced the concept, or at least to me, of using whey as a fermentation starter. Um, but since then, I've learned that it's really not necessary. But I don't think there's any risk in in using it. I think it does kind of kick off the fermentation a little better than just, um, maybe I won't say better, a little faster than doing it with um, just the, the natural, what, what's called wild fermentation, um, which is just using the naturally occurring bacteria that are on the leaves of the, the vegetables. Cabbage, for example, um, has a lot of naturally occurring lactobacillic, uh, um bacteria on it, and um, that's what it uses to to ferment so beautifully. What I've heard
1: with wild fermentation is that it can actually never go bad. If you add whey in it, does that bring an expiration date to it?
2: I've never experienced that. I found some ferments in my pantry when I was uh, thinking about this class, about this uh, presentation. I said, oh, I think there's some back in that corner over there. Pulled it out, uh, three-and-a-half-year-old carrots in a brine. And uh, I ate some. They weren't the best, but I think that's why they got lost in the first place.
1: Interesting. In addition to sauerkraut, what other ferments are you going to talk about in your presentation?
2: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna cover sauerkraut and then um, a variation that um, I call pink sauerkraut, um, which has a, a lot of different ve- uh, vegetables in it, and it gets its color from beets. Um, and but the whole thinking of it as a pattern where you could substitute out different vegetables and flavors that you like and you know they call it kimchi in Korea when it's made with certain vegetables, Uh, sauerkraut is usually just cabbage, maybe some spices, Um, and then there's this whole range of mixed vegetables that um, we don't have names for and um, you know I, I tell people If you come up with a combination that you like, feel free to name it, because um, we're in new territory here with with different combinations. Um, Sandor Katz calls them uh, krautchi, which is a combination of sauerkraut and kimchi. And uh, Okay, so I'm going to talk about those as as a pattern, and then I'm going to talk about brined vegetables, which is where you would leave things in larger chunks or whole um, vegetables that or small enough to fit into a jar, and then fill it up with salt and water, and you can add uh, whey to that as a starter. Um, And um, uh, so I'm going to talk about that as a concept of doing brined vegetables. And then uh, as a a final, I'm going to do a uh, fermented drink um, that's using quinoa, uh, a grain that's uh, non-gluten grain. and when I say a fermented grain drink, people will think alcohol, but it's not. It's also using the same um same bacteria, and it's a sour drink rather than an alcoholic. Drink. and when you talk
1: about fermenting some of vegetables in larger chunks or for anything such as pickles,
2: pickles would be an example of that. Yes, classic example of that. I don't recommend that people start with pickles. I've found that uh, I have had more um uh, more failures with pickles than any other any other vegetable. I think it's just because they are so soft and they tend to go mushy if you don't have things quite right. But the the process is exactly the same. Um, They're just a little pickier.
1: I would say pickles are a more advanced one, and that is the problem that I've heard when people make it is that they get too mushy. So sauerkraut, Mm -hmm. beat kvass, those are the better ones to start with. Do you do some pickles on your own?
2: Savas is another one that I'm going to be talking about. And that's an ex- another example of a brined vegetable, but in this case, you're actually going for the liquid rather than for the vegetable. And so um, it's made with a lot of water, and then the liquid is infused with the, um, the essence of the beets and um, and then drank as a beverage or as a tonic.
1: And are there some type of ferment that you do on your own that you won't be covering in the Presentation, but that you like to do often.
2: Well, I've got piles and piles of pickles right now. Um, we've got cucumbers growing in our garden, and uh, I thought they were done, but then they did another flash. so I've got I've got lots of pickles. Um, I've done I've experimented with lots of different vegetables, but mostly I, I kind of go with sauerkraut, some variation of um, of a, a, a kimchi, a krauchi, a, a fer- mixed fermented vegetables. Um, that might have cabbage as a base, and then have whatever's in season and whatever I've got in abundance um, mixed in, and then uh, and then classic cucumber pickles. In addition to vegetables, do you
1: ever do sourdough starters?
2: I've dabbled with it. Um, I'm not as um, I don't feel like I really have that one down as well as as uh, fermented vegetables. Um, I have made some sauerkraut. I mean, excuse me. I have made some sourdough that I've liked, but um, I've also had quite a few failures that just get black and moldy on top. So um, something about my house or whatever, I don't know. And I also think I'm sensitive to grains, so I I kind of decided after a while and the number of failures, it's like this isn't my thing.
1: Sourdough is a tough one. I would say probably even more advanced than pickles, and it's also a very time-consuming one because you have to. Be the starter culture, I think, every 12 hours is what they say.
2: I don't know that it's time-consuming so much as that you have to keep it going every day. Um, You you don't have to spend a lot of time, but you'd have to spend a little bit of time on it every day because if you leave it too long, and that's probably my problem, is I left it too long, and it gets something else growing on the surface. and In my case, it turns black on the surface and looks very unappealing.
1: No, I guess it's actually not that much time because it doesn't really take that much time to – In, but it's more, I guess, just a commemory. You have to remember to constantly feed it every day.
2: Exactly, and that's a nice thing about the fermented vegetables is you do something um, for this period of time, you know, maybe a half an hour or whatever that it takes you to to put it all together and to pack it into the jar, and then uh, and then you leave it. And you don't have to pin to it, uh, other than making sure it's not bubbling over. Uh, I have had um, occasion where where uh, I've packed the jar too full and uh, ends up uh, making a puddle on the counter. In addition
1: to your chapter and speaking at the Wise Traditions conference, this is going to be held in Portland, Oregon, and I know Portland has been well known as a scene for real food and for natural living, it's a perfect fit for that. And it sounds like based on your Chapter 2, which is not in Portland, but it is in the state of Oregon, in Eugene, that you have a lot going with holding often two events a month and having your business. Along with that, are there other people in the real food movement in Eugene, Oregon?
2: There are, and that's one of the reasons I love it so much. Um, We have a group, they put out a directory called the Locally Grown Directory, and their website is LaneFood.org and um, so it's in the, the C- Lane County, and they list all of the farms that they could uh, that they could find. Um, they list all of the farmers' markets. They list a number of restaurants and natural food stores that carry local products, and um, it's just this wonderful directory resource for for uh, people to find local food. And um, I, I thank them every time I think of it for doing that for us because as a chapter leader, one of my jobs is connecting people with local foods. And, um, um, you know, they've made it easy for me to do that. The, the only thing that I supplement that with is a list of um, raw milk sources, which um, they don't list in the, in the directory.
1: And in addition to that, are there a lot of access to farmers' markets and natural food stores where you live?
2: Yeah, I have said um, I've – I've traveled a, a bit and lived in some other places, and I say that Eugene has more uh, natural food stores per capita than any a place I've ever lived or visited. And like I said, that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. And there are um, there are a lot of there are a lot of of course vegetarians in this area. Um, we have um, a strong vegetarian and vegan population, and um, you know we're not out to convert them, but when they come looking for or, you know, finding out that, that the diet's not to, suited to them, you know, we want to be here as a resource for, um, you know, adding good quality animal proteins to their diet, and and, and particularly the fats. And I know that's similar
1: with Portland, because I've once heard Portland described as the most vegan-friendly city, and of course, there it happens, too, that people that are vegan, they realize that they can't live on it, such as... Denise Minger, who's from Portland, and she's speaking at the conference. But while Portland is known as the most vegan friendly city, I do see that Portland does also have a big movement with Weston Price and Paleo and Primal. And I kind of think that if there's a city or a town that has a large vegan population, a lot of that has to do with people rejecting the norm and wanting to do a different diet that they see as more healthy, more sustainable. So I think that perhaps in an area where you're going to get a lot of vegans, you are going to also get a lot of people in Weston Price and Paleo.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, what we all have in common is, is rejecting the junk food culture and um, and rejecting the um, uh, the big agribusiness and the um, factory farms and, and being um, – morally and ethically opposed to, to all of that and wanting to take you know, control over our, our foods and, uh, and our health, and, uh, and we're, we're all on the line on that.
1: And vegans also would be interested in your product Kraut Pounder because unless, as we talked about, if you make it with whey, then sauerkraut is a vegan dish, so there is some appeal too with the vegans for this fermentation.
2: Definitely, definitely. I think that's uh, one of the places where we cross and where it's really nice that we have that in common. Um, also, the grains that we talked about earlier, the tr- grains class that we're thinking of, is that if if people are going to um, to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet, they better make sure that they're getting all of the nutrients they can from the vegetable because, um, as I believe, they're not getting enough nutrients. And so, you know, any, anything they can do to enhance digestion. Is, is all for the better. So teaching them how to uh, soak and sprout and um, properly prepare grains so that they're getting the most out of that, di- that uh, nutrients is important.
1: That is very important because I think getting grains and vegetables that are fermented is probably the best way to digest them because when you look at the animals that are herbivores, the way they do that is they ferment them in their stomachs. So you need that probiotic benefit. So vegans are one that could also learn about taking the fear out of fermentation. I guess when I hear that phrase, taking the fear out of fermentation, something that comes to my mind is I know some people have a fear of just the word fermentation because their background on it is thinking when food goes bad, it starts to ferment. Is that in any way meant to by taking the fear out of fermentation to know that fermentation isn't something bad and it's actually – something that produces beneficial bacteria for us.
2: Well, that's certainly a part of it. I hadn't thought of it quite that way in, in naming the, the presentation, but, um, but yeah, that's cer- certainly a part of it. And I think it's because we've we've grown up in this culture that has been waging a war on bacteria for, for many years, and everything we hear about bacteria is in the realm of the pathogenic ones, and you have to um, use, you know, anywhere you go you use hand sanitizers and you and you cover your cough and you do all these things because we're afraid of bacteria and to say we're going to we're going to mix some stuff up together and then we're going to let it sit on the counter <laughs> for several days uh, out of the refrigerator that's scary for people I and mean, you know that, it, that it don't have any experience with it and so just taking that first step and saying that that's okay and that we're intentionally trying to culture bacteria in this jar <laughs> You know, that can can be a big leap for people.
1: And we've taken a lot of our fermented products off the shelves in the mainstream supermarkets, and instead we've used products that have vinegar, such as pickles. What is your thought on distilled vinegar?
2: Well, I don't think it's so bad, per se, but you're not getting the other benefits that a naturally um, lacto-fermented vegetable will have. I mean, pickles that are made from soaking cucumbers in vinegar – haven't really fermented. They've just been infused with this vinegar. And I mean, I think if it's apple cider, you know, especially if it's raw apple cider vinegar, that would be, um, you know, that is a fermented process. So you're you're using the the benefit of of something that's been fermented, but it's not um, it's not biologically active. It doesn't have the the, um, the live bacteria that uh, that act as probiotics when we consume them. And um, it's been it's been pasteurized for your protection, and um, and then you know you read these ingredients they also often have um, you know yellow dye number five and whatever else in there.
1: And the biggest ingredient that they have in there, which I don't think is brought up a lot, and this is of course the distilled vinegar, not the raw apple cider vinegar or the raw red wine vinegar, which also is fermented and that has some health benefits to it, but the distilled white vinegar, the thing that a lot of distilled white vinegar is made of, especially ones from Heinz, is corn. And mm-hmm. that you don't see an organic symbol on it, it brings up the question, is distilled white vinegar made from genetically modified
2: corn? Oh, probably. I mean, I, I think at this point that corn is all corn is pretty suspect. I mean, I, I still do buy a little bit of organic um, – Sprouted corn tortillas or some some corn chips every once in a while, and uh, some fresh fresh local corn when it's available. But I'm always I'm always hesitant, and I'm always telling my son not to you know not to just bag, buy products with corn off the shelf because they're probably GMOs. Oh, me too, and that's a big
1: reason why I've made more of an effort to avoid distilled vinegar. Not so much because it's not fermented, but if I don't know where the vinegar is from, then it could be GMO. And, and it goes with any corn. And I will buy organic corn, and I'll buy the corn tortillas. And I'll actually make my own corn tortilla chips because I want to avoid any of those corn tortillas that are cooked in the canola oil.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely would prefer to do that. But, um, I again, I said I'm sensitive to grains. I think I don't think corn really gets along with my body that well. So I've, I've tried doing the, the proper uh, – preparation for corn, which is soaking it in um, in lime water, and that's lime from the mineral rather than lime from a tree, um, and then preparing something with it, and I just think, yeah, no, it, this isn't for me. Uh, I, but I certainly support people that can that can handle it to do it that way.
1: Yes, because a lot of people don't realize that people often think of corn as a vegetable, but it actually is a grain, so if you do have grain sensitivities, then corn you need to avoid. Yeah. And with your grain sensitivities, have you gotten at all into doing non-grain baking, such as using coconut flour or almond flour?
2: I've done a little bit. I've um, I, my son and I did the GAPS program for a while, uh, and so we we avoided all all grains, even the non-gluten ones, um, and did some baking with like almond flour. Um didn't really get into coconut flour all that much, um and I've done some gluten free baking using using grains using rice and quinoa and amaranth and those sort of things um but i I just kind of you know listening to my body, I kind of go keep going back to now I think I do better when I avoid those also, so I'm not an expert on those um but I definitely have experience with it and um and in talking about some of the events that we have as a chapter, we've also got one of our one of our local volunteers um, is uh, uh, doing a, a GAP support group, so we also have that as a monthly event, um, semi-monthly, um, where they can get together and, and learn about doing the gaps program and uh, support each other and find resources and whatnot for that.
1: GAP support groups are great programs because our Western Press chapter, we have a business that's associated with us, the Culture Club 101, they're located in Pasadena, like our chapter, and they do gap Support Group, and they also do whole series on GAPS Cooking, because there are a lot of different classes you can offer when it comes to GAPS Cooking. Definitely,
2: but I think one of the important things to remember, and um, that I try to go back to, is, is not to make, when you, when you go through a change, and, um, and are changing your diet, you, have a tendency to try to make it look as much like your old diet as possible while still using whatever you know uh different ingredients that you're you're saying are allowed on this program or whatever but um but people have a tendency to try to make it look like their old diet and I think embracing the new foods that um that don't necessarily look like what you were familiar with before is an important part of settling into that new regime.
1: That is important. I know Sarah Pope, the healthy home economist, did an article on common gaps mistakes, and one of the things that she said is a mistake is when people go on gaps and they go for making too many of these gaps desserts. Well, the gaps you are supposed to avoid starches. The thing is if you're often making gaps-friendly cookies and cupcakes and other things,
2: Right, or just bread. Even though it's not
1: technically a starch, it is kind of starchy as well as with GAPS. The only sweetener you're supposed to do is honey, but even that's supposed to be kept to a minimum. But there are other things related with GAPS to learn how to cook too. It's not just replacing the things because I know a big part of GAPS is having a lot of bone broth and a lot of ferment. So learning how to do bone broths and learning how to do sauerkraut, that can also constitute as GAPS cooking
2: right, and I came from um when I first started revamping my diet i I got into a low carb um uh, diet and 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 uh, a lot of that material and um and I ran into that with there were a lot of low carb low carb products that were geared to trying to make the the diet look like a conventional diet where there's low carb breads and low carb pastas and low carb cookies and when you when you just accept that you don't need the bread or the pasta or the cookie, um, to have a good a good diet if that's you know, if that's what your body needs in order to heal, then there are so many other possibilities that open up and that are really that are really yummy and um, you know, soups and uh salads and lettuce wraps and um just having having the dishes separate rather than stuck between two pieces of bread. That just opens up a lot of possibilities that you may not be thinking if you're stuck on the, um, it's got to look like my old diet.
1: I know something that a friend of mine said, which was a really good point, which is to tell people about the GAPS diet, a better way to explain it than to say all the foods you can eat is list all the foods that you can Mm -hmm. eat on the GAPS diet. Mm -hmm.
2: There was a um, a low-carb writer that I really liked who said, that when she was introducing people to it, and she encouraged them not to think about that they couldn't have that that soda pop or whatever that they wanted, but to say, okay, after you've had all of these other things that you know have this list of you know eat this this number of things during the day, vegetables, meats, good fats, um, then and if you're still and drink but you know good clean water or something with a little bit of flavoring in it. Um, And if you're still wanting that soda pop, have it at the end. And so not to deprive yourself, but to not focus on, I can't have that. And I thought that was a really good mindset. That makes a lot of sense because with this
1: nutrient-dense meal, you should do pretty well to feel satiated and nourished, but if you still have a little bit at the end, then that's the time to have it because you've been able to get most of what your body needs and you won't crave more, whereas if you have it at the beginning, you're just going to want a lot more of it. In addition to these classes, do you have any plans for your Weston A. Price chapter to expand to do even more types of events?
2: I don't have anything in particular that I'm, you know, that I'm dying to do, but I would like to, to continue. I'd like to have the classes be uh, on a more regular schedule where we could say we're doing X number of classes each year and that people can count on those. And um, and get into a rhythm where we can um, we know that we're going to do an organs meats class we know we're going to do a grains class we know we're going to do a fermentation class we know we're going to do a bone broth class whatever um, however we break those down and um, and th- th- then people could know okay I need to get into this one because it won't be around for another year or whatever the whatever the sequence is so I would like I would like to get to a stage where we can do that right now we're just um, those of us who are willing to teach get together and say, okay, when can we fit it into our schedule? When do we think people will show up? And when do we have enough time to get all of the recipes together and all of the the materials um, that we we put together in a nice booklet that we give our participants? Um, And then then we do it as frequently as we can, but often that's not as frequently as I'd like to to ultimately have them. And then, of course, I'd love to do more... um, Hands-on workshops, and we've done some some interesting events, like we had what I what I dubbed a old-fashioned fat rendering party. We um one of our one of our local participants volunteered her house, and uh, she had a bunch of fat (coughs) in her freezer, and uh, we uh, I brought some fat, and she brought some fat, and we invited people to come, bring your knives, and um, come and chop and learn how to do this really simple process of melting melting the fat to turn it into lard or tallow to be able to use, you know, take home and use in your cooking, and I said it was a, a BYOJ, bring your own jars, and so everybody who wanted some uh, went home with a jar or two of, of a rendered fat to uh, to use in their kitchens after the after the class was over, and we had a great time.
1: Love it. Well, we're just about out of time, but before we go, tell the listeners where they can find the websites, both for the Eugene, Oregon chapter for the Weston Price and also for Kraut Pounder. Well,
2: Kraut Pounder is uh, simple, crowdpounder.com That's krautpounde rcom And the Eugene chapter is eugenewestonaprice.org.
1: All right, Lisa. Pleasure to have you here. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week with my guest, I talked about the Big Dessert, which is the Wise Traditions Conference in Portland. Tickets are still available. You can purchase yours at the Weston Price website. That's WestonAPrice.org. The conference takes place September 21st and 22nd. That's this Saturday and Sunday. Also, my guest Lisa and I were talking about grain-free baking. This Thursday, September 19th at 7 p.m. at the Unity of Pasadena, Suzanne Peters will be offering Part 1 of her Grain-Free Baking class. You'll get to learn how to make treats from coconut almond flour, take home the recipes, and also have a small box of these gluten-free and grain-free desserts. And finally, this Sunday, September 22nd, the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena will be conducting a traditional sodas workshop. You can learn how to create your own root beer and other soft drinks using a lacto-fermentation process. These beverages are loaded with probiotics, enzymes, antioxidants, and B vitamins, making them a great alternative to all of the unhealthy soft drinks out there. The class starts at 1 p.m. To register, go to the page cultureclub101.com. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, check out the community calendar on the Weston A. Price Pasadena's website at westonaprice.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. Next week, the Wise Tradition speaker series continues as I roll into my interviews with the speakers for the International Conference in Atlanta. I kick that off with interviewing Weston A. Price president and founder Sally Fallon. For more information on my guests, as well as to listen to past episodes, visit my blog at appropriate omnivore.com. Oh,